0: going to leave it at that for this morning. Uh, Let's open up to John chapter 11, if you would. We're going to be beginning in verse 33 today. Pastor Rob is at the uh, Grace Church Men's Retreat in Potter Valley this weekend, and he is uh, preaching, I think, three times and sharing his testimony. So he is pouring out his life force this weekend, Uh, So uh, you get stuck with me. Don't worry, I won't take us an hour like I did last time. That was a very unique situation, and uh, I promise we will not do that again today. Um, And then next week we'll close out chapter 11. We're making our way toward the end of John. Um, Let's see, the last time I was with you guys was John 9, and I've heard a couple of you remind me about Blinded by the Light, so I'm glad that you remembered uh, the catchphrase from that one. I'm glad that that song will now plague you for the rest of your days and you will always remember John 9. Blinded by the light. You guys all there, John 11? All right. Let's pray together before we get started. Father, thank you, God, that you have allowed us here to uh, behold the glory of your Son that you have opened our eyes uh, to his wonderful majesty. God, thank you that we have come to know him, come to know him as Savior and Lord and friend and brother. God, thank you that we sit here today at perfect peace with you because of what he has done. Thank you, Father, that you have gathered your saints here again. We're so grateful, Father, to be able to come together together And to sing to you and to celebrate what you've done and to have communion with your body and with you. We thank you, Father, that you have removed our sin from us and you've cast it away. And that we stand perfected before you, washed in the blood of your Son. And we have so much to be thankful for, God. We thank you that you have raised us to life. And we reflect and rejoice in that this morning. We ask that you would encourage us and challenge us and strengthen us. Through the message of your word, Father, would you please speak through me, God? uh, Your great and wonderful promises, Father, would you instruct us and would you help those who are weak and weary this morning, Father? Lift our eyes to gaze upon you as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to cover 11 verses today, verses 33 through 44. And for you, uh, faithful note-taking folk, today's message is entitled "Oh, I gave the media team a different title." Okay, the the care and the power of the Savior, the care and the power of the Savior. That's the title. I've got a different one on my notes, but I changed it at the last second. I think it's more fitting. The care and the power of the Savior. And so, as we make our way toward the close of chapter eleven. Uh, As Pastor Rob put it in the beginning of the chapter, the stage has been set for God's glory. You guys remember that sermon? The stage has been set for God's glory. And Jesus is about to perform, as you guys know, the most shocking and incredible miracle. This is sort of the capstone on his public ministry. The raising of Lazarus is his final, his ultimate sign before his own resurrection from the dead. And it is a precursor of what is to come. It's a precursor of what is to come. It's a, it's a prototype, so to speak, of what is to come for all of us. And it is an undeniable defense of his claim that he made earlier to have life in himself, right? As he told Martha in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And so today, he's going to prove it. He's going to back up his claim And Jesus is uniquely the only person in all of history to be able to support the claims that he makes. There's some lofty claims in the book of John, are there not? I think we've covered six of them already. The bread, the light, the life. And many men throughout history, some even in the scripture, have imagined themselves to be gods on earth or to have special access to supposed deities and their supposed powers. But there is only one whose incredible claims match his incredible actions. Amen? There is only one who makes these claims over and over and is able to carry it out. He says repeatedly, my works testify of who I am. If you won't believe my words, believe the works that I do. These are the works that only God is able to perform. There's no denying that he did the works of the Father, the works of God, immediate authoritative control over every aspect of his creation. Down to the molecule, power over the laws of nature, over chemical processes, right, water into wine. You guys know you're from the valley. Making wine is an extremely complex chemical process that takes place over lots of time. Jesus is able to command the molecules of water to become wine instantly over biological processes, over sickness and ailments and disabilities and deformities and power over even life itself. Have you guys watched um, the the Avengers movies? Just smile at me if you have. Yeah? Okay, you're familiar. So even even Hollywood and all of its lofty imaginings. Even, even Hollywood cannot conceive of such a being that is so powerful. They can't put this kind of being in the movies because it just won't work. He's too powerful to even be conceived of. He's the, he's the creator of all things. All, all things in the movies, they trace their power back to something. But in the reality, in the real world, the God of the universe is powerful beyond human comprehension. And that's important for our text today because this text is not only about His power, but it's about His care for His people. Now, when we consider this glorious God, uh, his, His greatness, so to speak, can really throw our minds for a loop if we think on this. And it can, if not corrected by the Scriptures, it can distance us from Him in our thinking. We think he is holy and pure and almighty and eternal and all-knowing and transcendent and sovereign, and he lacks nothing and he needs nothing. And when we think of him this way, or at least attempt to as we should, as he's been revealed, we can develop a picture of him that is very far off. We think, what, what does this God want to do with me? He seems inaccessible or distant or uninvolved or uninterested. He's the almighty What what does he care about the tires on my car, right? We may begin to think that he has other better things to do than listen to the minutia of our problems and our little life and our little world. After all, Hebrews 1 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, right? Women's Bible study. Have you guys covered that already? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Well, As Christians, we accept that, right? We don't exactly see how that works, but we believe it. We believe it by faith. But I would submit to you guys that what is more perplexing is that in Jesus, this transcendent God has revealed his nearness. He is entirely independent of his creation. He's a consuming fire. He dwells in unapproachable light, but he is at the same time here among his people. His living spirit lives inside, inhabits our bodies, and gives us life. And because our Savior is a real human being, he knows everything about us experientially. He knows everything about us. He knows even including our emotions and our weaknesses, so that what we end up with is an all-powerful and an all-compassionate Lord, That's what you guys are studying in Hebrews, an all-powerful and an all-compassionate Lord, an all-compassionate God, a Savior who was made like us in every way, fully human and yet without sin. Well, you may ask, what does that have to do with anything or with our text today? Well, it has everything to do with everything because that Savior is... That God-man requires our absolute loyalty and trust. He requires these from us, and He has given us every possible reason to trust Him. Has He not? Yes? He's given us every possible reason to trust Him in the power of His godness and in the sympathy of His care and His humanity. He knows us perfectly and completely. And he is also perfectly and completely able to meet our greatest needs and to help us, amen? He knows and he's powerful if we would just trust him. If we would just trust him. John is showing us here how perfect of a savior he really is. He is a complete savior. On one hand, if he is powerful but detached, we're hopeless. If he's all-powerful and he doesn't care... Well, we're in big trouble. But on the other hand, if he cares, but he's not powerful, we're equally hopeless, right? How many of you are powerful enough to save? None of you, but you care for people, right? You would reach out and save people if you could, but you can't. You're not powerful enough. So if Jesus is not powerful, we're in huge trouble. And if he does not care, we are in huge trouble. But since he is both, he is worthy of all of our trust. He knows us completely, and He can save us completely, and that is the core of today's passage is trust. You might have thought it was going to be resurrecting power, and of course that's going to be in there, but there is a response that's required to that resurrecting power, and that is trust. Trust even in the face of death, which we're going to see today. Faith to follow the outrageous commands of Christ. Humanly speaking, as insane as they may be, trust to obey and follow him even when we don't understand faith in the power and the care of the Savior. You guys ready? With me? All right. So we're confronted with a real example of this right away. Look at verse 33 if you would. We're probably reading from different translations, but that's just fine. Therefore, when Jesus saw her, this is um, Mary weeping, And the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. So this scene that we're still in from last Sunday is a heavy scene, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull you guys into it this morning. I know you all came in all chipper and happy because of the rain, but we're going to we're gonna have to dive into the reality of what we're getting into here. That's our job as readers. We can't just gloss over the text and pick out the parts that we like. We've got to get our minds into what's happening here. So if any of you have ever been to a funeral or a burial, um, you know the emotional state of the family who has lost, even if it's not your family. You can't help but share in their pain and grief. Even if you don't know the person that died, there is an innate empathy, at least in most of us. If you have ever experienced death yourself, you know what someone else is going through. And you you can see it all over their faces and their countenance. And everything about them says, I am destroyed and grieving and I'm at a loss. And we are dropped right into that place here with this family and those who are mourning with them. They are crushed, they're wailing, they're hurting. It's a very human scene. It's very natural and a very vulnerable and a very raw state that we see these people in. And you guys know if you've ever lost someone close to you that the pain of loss will do this even to the toughest of us. Even to those of you who never cry Wait until you you lose your mother or your brother or your spouse or a child. These things will absolutely break the human spirit. And now, as this lamenting is going on, Jesus is present. He's there with them and he's taking it all in. And far from the stoic and cold and emotionless response we might expect from a transcendent and all-knowing God... We find the humanity of Christ is on full display here. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now, we'll examine his response a little closer, but just on a very basic level, guys, a very simple reading of the text, can we recognize together that our Lord indeed has emotions and feelings? I know that's just like Sunday School 101 But I'll be the first to admit that in my understanding of God, sometimes it's difficult for me to grasp that he has emotions. He's a a spirit being who feels. He's not just a spirit who's all powerful and looks down and goes, yep, I knew that was going to happen, knew that was going to happen, knew that was going to happen, not surprised, not an issue, no problem for me. He has feelings and he responds in time to human suffering. How amazing is that? The transcendent God responds to human suffering. Us little creatures that run around in His world and destroy it and blaspheme Him and rebel against Him, He responds to human suffering. And not only that, He entered into it Himself in space and in time. The one through whom all things were created is also the one who weeps with those who weep. Isn't that amazing? He weeps with those who weep. So when you find yourself stricken and afflicted and mourning and broken, as difficult as that situation is, as difficult as it is to see clearly during that time, we must believe that He has not abandoned us. He is not far off. He is not distant. He is near. He feels. He understands. And He requires faith from us he requires faith and faith involves believing his word amen it involves believing his word despite what we see despite what we feel we have to believe that his word is true and he makes it plain to us that he not only knows our misery but that he took it all upon himself in ways that we can never comprehend Jesus has experienced every human emotion to a degree that is beyond what any human being has ever experienced. He is a perfect and compassionate Savior. He knows. When we are grieving, we need to believe that. We need to know that. We need to believe that. He knows and He cares. He clothed Himself not only in human flesh, but He clothed Himself in human feeling. Now interestingly here there is more to his response than just sorrow. Most commentators that are familiar with the original language will tell you that there is a sense of outrage in his spirit here. There's a sense of agitation that goes beyond simple grief. In fact even the word for his tears shed are different from the others. Why? What this communicates perhaps we can't no, exactly, but in my humble, non-scholarly opinion, this communicates that Jesus', is, Jesus is troubled spirit, his agitated spirit, his, his groaning, it communicates to us that he has the fullest understanding of what is going on here, and he experiences the gravity of the situation in a fuller way than anyone else that is present. It's not only the sorrow of death and loss that he's responding to, right? He did know that this was going to happen, and he did know that he was going to raise... Excuse me, I need water. He did know that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he also knows the sting of the curse, the sting of sin, the anger of God towards Satan, and his destruction and his schemes. And perhaps he's even irritated at the doubt and unbelief of those who are present. Maybe he's even irritated at the hopelessness wailing and and the lack of faith of the others to not see beyond what's right in front of their eyes. Whatever the case is, the reality of this scene is more clear to him and he experiences a broader grief than even Lazarus's sisters. It's not just single-minded on my brother has died. Jesus experiences the grief of everything that is going on from an eternal perspective. He knows it all. Even though he knows the outcome of all things, the present moment still affects him. And unlike the pagan deities that we find all throughout other worldviews, human beings are not pests to our God. We are not simply slaves created for his work. Mysteriously, we are actually valuable to him. That's amazing, isn't it? We have value to the creator and so jesus asked them where lazarus is laid and they show him and as he is weeping we find the usual division that occurs among the jews every time jesus does something it divides the crowd right there's the naysayers and the believers and so he is a polarizing figure then and now is he not One group says, wow, look at him weeping. See how he loved Lazarus. Verse 37. Some of them said, could this man who opened the eyes of the man who was blind not have also kept this man from dying? Do you see how we must trust in his power and his care in order to see and understand? These people know the miracle that he had performed, right? They know that he had restored sight to the man who was born blind. They know that he is powerful, but it seems that they first doubted his care. They doubted his care, right? They know he's powerful. They know he's able. But, but he was late. He didn't show up on time. I think we are very prone, too, to this error. We have no problem affirming Jesus' equality with the Father, and we affirm his miracles and his power to save because again, intellectually, Christians, we, we believe these things to be true, but when the rubber hits the road, do we believe that he cares for us in every moment? Do you believe that he cares for you right now? Do you believe that that immense power is at work on your behalf? Do you believe that he has the power? Sure. Do you believe that that power is working for you right now? Do we actually trust him? right here and right now, with every circumstance that's going on in our lives. Not just to save us from wrath on that day, but to deliver us today, right here, right now. Do you trust him in that way? These people were confused. Why didn't Jesus come earlier and save his friend? Here's a good one for you. If he loved him so much, why didn't he blank, right? If he loved him so much, why did he let him die? If God is love, as you Christians say, then why does he allow these things to happen? Why do we get so sick? Why do we get cancer? Why do we struggle so deeply? Why do our loved ones suffer and die? These are the inevitable thoughts of the human mind in the face of suffering. But what does John tell us? That Jesus made a mistake? That he didn't make it on time? Right? his feet got tired, and he was trying to run to Lazarus, but he just couldn't quite make it, that he was too late, that he didn't care enough to get there. No. John records that Jesus said there was a specific purpose for all of this. Do you guys remember what it was? Go ahead and shout it out, interactive crowd. See the glory of God. And as we are about to see, to see the salvation of souls. The glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, and the salvation of souls. We have to remember, guys, if you take nothing away from this, we have to remember there is more going on in God's universe than what meets our squishy little eyes. Do you guys believe that? We see with these, but we don't see with these. Do you understand? There's more going on than what is right in front of us. There is an entire world out there that God is in control of, and we are a part of it, but we are not the center of it, and the things in front of us are not the center of it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge all of us this morning to think rightly about human suffering. And I know that everyone in this room has experienced it because you're breathing and you're sitting here. So I know this is universal. No one is exempt from this. Have you considered... Considered that you might be suffering so that others can see how you endure it faithfully. Have you ever considered that? That's an others-focused mindset. God, I'm grieving, I'm hurting, I know you're here with me, but what are you using this suffering and this grieving for? Have you ever considered that people are watching you suffer and they're watching the way that you endure it? The way that you suffer and you are not crushed, you are not lost, and that they might marvel at God's grace in your life, your ability to press on, your ability to keep going and keep trusting in Him. Have you ever considered, those of you who are rich in wealth like me, that in your poverty, Your gratitude for the little things that you have might lead someone else to know his goodness. Have you ever considered that your life is set up in such a way as to reflect his glory outward? Even your weaknesses, your sicknesses, your diseases, your financial situation, your family life. All of this has purpose. Everything in God's plan has purpose. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Even evil and sickness and death are subservient to the king of kings they serve him he is not bound by them all of these things serve the god of the universe and it is not our job nor is it our place to figure out everything in the sovereign god's eternal decree and his perfect counsel and will that is an aimless task my friends we We'll never be able to do it, and it's not our place to do it. Our job, our place, is to be faithful with what is in front of us, to endure suffering with patience, to rejoice in Him always, to receive good from Him, to receive calamity from Him, to be thankful and to trust Him as a child trusts its Father. Inherently, complete dependence and complete surrender. Despite what we see in front of our eyeballs, I believe that God is in control. I believe He is powerful, and I believe He cares for me right now. Whatever it is that's going on, I have to override my human thinking that God has cast me aside and believe that He is using all things for His glory, for my good, And for the salvation of souls. That's what God is doing in the world. Do you guys believe that? We have to trust that He cares for us and we have to trust His power. We can't just believe that He cares, we have to believe that He's able to do something. Verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, again, this is more than just sad, this is all encompassing, deeply moved, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. All right, hopefully your guys' breakfast is digested now. Because again, we have to look at this carefully. So we come to the tomb. It's carved into a rock or it's a natural cave and it's sealed with a big stone. And it's sealed for good reason. It's sealed for good reasons. To keep out grave robbers, right? To keep out the stench of putrefaction that's inside the tomb. There's lots of reasons that there's a big giant rock covering the entrance to this. It's there intentionally. It didn't roll itself there. They put it there. It's to keep people out and to keep stink in. You guys understand that? Now again... Consider the reality of the situation. Jesus is making an outrageous request here. We've got to put ourselves in the shoes of the family. He is asking for this stone to be removed from Lazarus's tomb, where it's supposed to stay, and there would not be a rational reason on earth to do this. Why? Why on earth would you remove the stone to let out the air of a decomposing body? And this is intentional. Jesus does not make mistakes. This is why Jesus waited two extra days before coming, right? He said he heard Lazarus was sick, and he goes, all right. So what's for lunch, right? We're going to hang out here for a couple days, and then we're going to make our way over there. It was to produce this exact moment here where Lazarus is dead. And I mean dead, dead. He's not just kind of dead. He's not freshly dead and, you know, lukewarm he is dead he's decaying he reeks of rotting flesh that's what's going on here the jews did not go to great lengths to preserve bodies right they didn't mummify people they wrapped their bodies in spices to cover the smell of the original decaying process and that's it let him go seal that bad boy right airtight so in essence, what Jesus would be requesting here is the nastiest open casket funeral. That's, that's basically what he's saying. Can you imagine having a body sitting for four days and then everyone come up and have a look-see, right? It's, it's shocking. We all love our families, but we don't want to smell their decomposing bodies four days later. And this is from a human perspective. This is, this is absurd, right? It's crazy. But, brothers and sisters... It is no longer our place to see things from an earthly perspective, is it? We have been given eyes to see, and we must see through the eyes of faith, not just the squishy balls in our head. Through the eyes of faith, we have to defer our understanding to Him. Lord, You know all things. What do I know? Two plus two, it's most likely four, according to what history has told us. I could be wrong. It's not... It's not said specifically in the Scripture that 2 plus 2 is 4. We believe God is reasonable and rational. But what do I know? If God says, roll the, roll the stone away, what are we going to do? Roll it away. God has commanded us to do things that are 100% opposed to earthly wisdom. Now, this is obviously an extreme example. This is, this is a miraculous example. But in our day-to-day doings, in our normal lives God is asking us to do things that are absurd to the world. These are the things that the world sees and says, this is insane. Why would you give a third of your income to either the church or people in the church? Why don't you just keep it and buy cool stuff, you know? What's the matter with you? Why would you do that? All they do is lie and, and uh, you know, pilfer people and take advantage of them in many way. All they're doing is propagating some you know, fairy tales about the guy in the sky. Right? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you give up your time and your resources and your energy to try to convince people to believe some story about some Jewish guy that died 2,000 years ago? You guys are nuts. Why would you do that? Well, that's exactly what he's doing here. He is requesting something that is unthinkable. And in everyone's eyes here, we see from the text, the time for miracles has passed, right? The case is closed, so to speak. The chance to save Lazarus has passed. He's gone. There's nothing left to be done. See, some, some, some doubted Jesus' care, but surely Martha knew his love for her brother, right? The sisters knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. But what she doubted was the extent of his power, not the extent of his care, but the extent of his power. They knew that Jesus could have healed Lazarus. There's no mistake in that. He had healed all kinds of people. If only he were still alive, he could have saved him, right? If only you were here on time. You could have reversed this. But what they did not see, what they did not see was that Christ came to win the war against death. He came to beat the undefeatable enemy. He came not to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow the great tyrant that has ruled over the earth, the reign of sin and death, over the face of the creation since Adam's fall. The Bible tells us the last enemy to be destroyed. They did not truly understand God's proclamation when he boasted in Jeremiah 32. Some of you guys will know this one. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? Jesus was glad he wasn't there to save Lazarus. It's bizarre. He said, I'm glad we weren't there. Why? For your sake. I'm glad we weren't there. So that these people would see and believe, that they would have faith even in the unthinkable, to trust even in the face of death, the one who is himself, the resurrection and the life. The one who cares and the one who is able. I couldn't help but think of Abraham who goes down in history as a man who believed God, right? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He believed the promises of God. You guys remember Genesis 22? God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his beloved son, the son of promise, the son that God himself had promised him. And what did Abraham do? He didn't reason with God and go, well, but, but this is the son that you gave me. I think this is kind of contradictory to your plan here, that you're, you're messing this up. He didn't do any of that. He obeyed God. He believed God, and he took him at his word. He did not know how it was going to work out, but he believed anyway. Hebrews 11, you guys aren't there yet, but you will get there, tells us that Abraham considered that God was even able to raise his son from the dead. He said, God, you promised me this child, and if you tell me To slaughter him, I'll slaughter him. I believe you're able to raise him from the dead. I'm going to obey you no matter what. He knew that God would make good on his promise. He was convinced of it. He was convinced enough to sacrifice his own son. This is the kind of faith that God desires from us, from you. Will we entrust our lives and our decisions to him? Maybe we will. What about our family's lives? What about our brothers, our sisters, our spouses, our friends? What about our children? Are they ours or do they belong to him? Do we believe that he knows what he is doing or do we accuse him of making mistakes or turning his face away? Do we trust him in the unthinkable commands that he has given us I promise you and the scripture promises I don't make promises that the Bible doesn't make just so you guys know I promise you the word promises you if you do if you do trust him in this way you will see things that were otherwise impossible to see trust his care trust his power and you will see verse 40 this is Jesus's response to Martha she says Jesus we can't We can't take the stone away. He stinks by now. It's too late. He said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so, verse 41, they removed the stone. So Jesus persuades Martha to accept his command. And she and the others trust him enough to simply do what he says here. They remove the stone. And his words are a promise and a challenge and a light to us even here and now. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. If you believe, you will see. Faith is what opens our eyes to his miraculous power. Right When we, when we interact with unbelievers... And we say, well, just look at this world that God has made. Look at the creation. Look at the, look at the human body fearfully and wonderfully made. Look at all the systems that work together in perfect harmony to create life. And they go, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty wild that that was an accident, isn't it? And we go, no, 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 no. This is, this is God's creation. Look at it. It's a, it's a finely tuned machine. And they go, yeah, isn't that wild? What a crazy accident. We go, no, 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 look, look, look at his word, look at his promises, look at his faithfulness. They go, yeah, I guess, I don't, I don't, I don't really, I don't see really what you see there. You know, I don't, I don't understand. It seems like a bunch of fairy tales. I don't see, I don't understand. We're all looking with our eyes at the same stuff, right? We're all looking at the same evidence. We all see the same world. We all see the same fossils, Right? This one kind of looks like some scattered bones of something looks like a monkey, but this one, a little human-like, it's the missing link. There's one, right? There was a bunch of monkeys, and then there was one thing that was a monkey-like human, and then the humans just exploded. See? Can't you see the evidence? It's right in front of you. Can't you see it? We see, but we do not see if we do not see by faith. Faith opens our eyes to the glory of God. Amen? Faith prepares the way for His glorious work in our hearts and in our lives and in our sight. If we believe in Him, of course we will first see His glory through resurrection, right? The resurrection of our own spirits. He raises our dead spirits to life. And walking by faith, we will see Him resurrect others who come to believe in Him as well. But faith is not just the channel of God's grace and salvation. It's not just a one-time thing where I believe in Jesus and and now I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Yes, it is true. It is the channel of God's grace and salvation. But as we see with Martha here, believing is seeing. Believing is living and believing is seeing. You guys ever heard the phrase, seeing is believing? Wrong. Wrong. The Bible turns that on its head, with God believing is seeing. Faith precedes sight. We trust in that which is unseen. Yes, things that are eternal. Is Patty a sorrow here today? Oh, bummer. Well, hopefully she watches this online. There's a song uh, by my favorite band, uh, and Patty's pretty obsessed with them too. Uh, it's it's called Faith. The song is called Faith. And the the, the verse goes like this. I'm putting faith in someone I can't see. The God invisible has shown me grace beyond belief. I'm putting confidence in things unseen with full assurance that to lose my life is not defeat. And then the chorus goes like this. This is the promise of my hope that I am loved as one of his own. Receive it, believe, and you'll know faith is true sight. See with new eyes, taste of his life, faith is true sight. Faith is true sight, see with new eyes, taste of his life. I love that line. Faith is true sight. If you do not believe God's word concerning his care and his power, you will never trust him enough to be led to the end of yourself, to the end of human comprehension and human ability and human wisdom. Everybody sees, but the faithful see. The faithful truly see. Unbelief blinds. And as we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus didn't even bother doing miracles in certain areas because of their unbelief. Unbelief blinds, but belief gives sight to his glory. And as we close, his glory is put on full display as he promised to those who would believe. This is the rest of verse 41. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, but I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so at the climax of this chapter, Jesus shows his unhindered relationship with the Father. Because he is sinless, the Father always hears him. Because he is sinless, the Father does whatever he asks. And the first thing that Jesus does is what? Gives thanks. Always modeling prayer for us. As he he gazes into heaven, he gives thanks. And he wants his listeners to know that everything he does, he does for the glory of the Father. And he and the Father are one in purpose that they might believe in the Son. And so he gives thanks out loud for what God has already determined to do. God has already heard him. And he's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. And then by simply using his voice... He cries out and Lazarus emerges from the tomb. The same voice that spoke the universe into existence, the I am, speaks and life is given at his will. Right? We've been following the I am statements throughout the book of John. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He has life in himself. He is able to command life by the power of his word unimaginable unequaled power not only in history but in our own imaginations unimaginable power and it's displayed in personal care in personal involvement in a real human life Lazarus's sickness his death his family's grief all served a purpose nothing is wasted here with God all of this pain served to glorify the father and the son and to bring saving faith to those who are looking on And to foreshadow the day that is coming for every human being on this earth. This is John 5, verse 28. When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so Lazarus' resurrection serves as a picture of what is to come. And it serves as a picture of what is now. What is happening right now is the door of salvation is open wide. It's open wide. Come and see and believe. John 5.25 Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Amen? Amen? Those who hear will live. Jesus' voice through His Word and through our proclamation of His Word goes out into a world that is dead in sin. Entombed, decaying, wasting away, growing smellier and smellier by the day as the rottenness produces more and more evil and sin. And those who hear His voice crying out to them, I am the way The truth and the life, I am the resurrection. No one comes to the Father except through me. Come to me that you may have life. Those who hear and believe in him will be resurrected in a moment from spiritual death to life. They will be raised from the grave by the voice of the Savior. All it takes is to hear the word of Christ and to believe, right? Faith comes by hearing. the one who cared so greatly for his sheep, the Savior, who cared so greatly that he, the eternal Son of God, one with the Father, one with the Spirit, put on a mortal and human body and endured human grief and suffering and died a human criminal's execution being made like us in every way except without sin in order to pay for our evils. And in so doing, he has robbed the grave of victory. you guys believe that? He didn't come not knowing what to do. He didn't come to Lazarus' tomb cowering and afraid. He came as a conquering champion. He came to defeat death through his own death and his own resurrection, and he has conquered, amen? He rose in power, he rose victorious, he completed his mission, he finished it, and the grave, we are told, could not hold him. And so John wrote that we would believe in him. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart against him. He is a mighty Savior. He is one that cares for you, and He is one that is powerful enough to raise you from the dead. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. There is coming a day when every person will be resurrected. Those who have trusted the Savior to eternal life and joy and peace with Him, and those who have rejected Him to eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. Not a one time payment, not annihilation, not destruction in a moment. We don't cease to exist. Eternal judgment. There is coming a day when God's wrath will be poured out on this earth and its inhabitants. And that day will come like this unexpected. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day? There is a day when that resurrection will happen, but there is also a resurrection that is here and now for those who will heed his voice and live. And if you have trusted him, if you have trusted him this morning, I hope that that's all of you. If you have trusted in this Savior, remember in whom you have believed. Consider these things. Your doubting, though we all doubt, your doubting will only keep you From seeing him as he is. Remember that he is the God man. He is the God man. He is the only unique God man. He is at the same time completely sympathetic and completely holy. He has complete understanding, and yet he can still require complete righteousness and perfection from us. He is completely transcendent and He is completely present. He is all that we need. He's all that we need. Not in some unsearchable metaphorical sense. He truly is all that we need. He is God and He is man. Whatever, friends, you are anxious about right now as you sit in your chairs, Cast it upon him. If he cares for us enough to be tortured and killed and drink the wrath of the Father, and he is powerful enough to raise the dead with his voice, then what do we have left to fear? What do we have left to worry about? What uncertainties can stand before the God man? He cares enough to lay his life down, and he's powerful enough to take it back up again. Trust him. Trust him. Whatever you are grieving right now, remember that he entered into our grief and he shared it. A man of sorrows, yes? Acquainted with grief, he knows. He knows grief more than we will ever know and he is powerful enough to use grief for your good and for his glory and the salvation of souls, amen? He is using it all. Give your grief to him. Cry out to him and entrust it to him. Believe that he is working in the midst of it. Believe that he is for you. This God is for you. And believe that he has a purpose for suffering. Jesus' suffering was the ultimate suffering and it served the ultimate purpose, didn't it? How much more shall his servants suffer and expect that suffering to be used for his purposes we are not above our master are we if he suffered we will suffer too he entrusted himself to the father he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously father your will be done not mine if you believe him in this way you will see his glory in your suffering despite your suffering god thank you Father, that you are a God who cares for his people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a shepherd who cares deeply for his sheep. We thank you, Lord, that you are our great protector, that you not only care for us, but that you are mighty and powerful, that nothing can snatch us from your hand, no one can overrule you, no one can kill the God-man. And hold him in the grave. No one can take his sheep away from him. We thank you, Lord, that though we struggle and suffer and stumble, you are ever with us, you are ever for us, and you are ever conforming us into your image, and you're using pain and suffering to do it. We believe, Lord, that you suffered much and you suffered for us. So how shall we not receive suffering also from your hand? Help us to remember that you care and that you are powerful, that you are a perfect Savior. We rejoice in you this morning. We give thanks and we lift our voices once again uh, to sing to you. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.